that said, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Timothy chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 1. And I'm going to read through verse 7 as we continue and really finish our last sermon in this series on missions. Um, Next week, Jason will preach in a psalm and then one of the psalms. And then the week after that, we will jump back into Hebrews, starting at Hebrews 5. So I will jump us back in Hebrews, starting Hebrews 5 in two weeks from today. Um, But this morning, we finished this mission series. So 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider this text of Scripture together, Superintended by your spirit at the hand of the Apostle Paul in a letter to Timothy as a young pastor cleaning up the church in Ephesus, helping build upon the foundation that Paul had laid there and strengthen it. We pray that as we hear from Paul in instructing Timothy that we would hear what it is that your spirit is saying to the church in every generation. That we might know what it is that ought to be heard by our ministers and our missionaries. And by Christ's church, his body of which he is the head, so that he would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we send out missionaries, which we have done on more than one occasion, in which we pray the Lord will bless us with the opportunity to continue to do in the future, when we send them out, we send our people out to a deeply serious task. And our responsibility really in raising up missionaries and in training them and sending them and supporting them when they're in the field is deeply important for at least three reasons. First, the missionary and their family, if they're not a single, which in some cases we'll send singles and have, the missionary and their family will suffer great loss. They will suffer great loss of of a variety of kinds, and that makes the task quite weighty and serious. Second, the people to whom we are sending our missionaries are eternally damned, and they need salvation. They need to know Christ. Apart from knowing Him, they have no hope of salvation, and therefore that makes the task Incredibly weighty and serious. Eternally weighty and serious. And third, the glory of God is our highest concern. We don't want to dishonor the name of the Lord nor dishonor his word. And so there is an increasing, if you will, bearing of weight in the significance of what it is we're sending the missionary to do. And, and frankly, in the local church here in the U.S., what it is we're raising up the young pastor to do. They're, they're quite parallel in many regards. Sending folks to the most difficult places on earth is sending them to an incredibly difficult task. It is already hard to raise up a young man knowing the spiritual war you're sending him into, to be a pastor in his own language and context. Now imagine raising up young women, sending them into another language and context, potentially a closed country, likely a difficult place to live, with the same burden that you're raising up a young pastor for here, in their own language and context, with with really quite a bit more comfort. 
Even among the best qualified and prepared missionaries, there are many who do not make it long term and end up coming home. I'm not just speaking to the ill-prepared or unqualified who come home. Even among the best qualified and best prepared, many don't make it. So we need to be vigilant. We need to be vigilant to identify the best candidates to train and send and support. In an effort to help us think about this, what I want to do is look at how Paul encouraged Timothy to be faithful as a godly minister of the gospel. Now, Paul planted the church at Ephesus. He is the kind of frontier missionary that we've been talking about in this series. As I've been going through missions. He went to a people who had no gospel. They had no church. He went where Jesus had never been named. And he laid the foundation of preaching the gospel and planting a church there at Ephesus. He raised up elders. He trained them. He turned the church over to them. They made a giant mess of things. Those elders did, which Paul warned them about in Acts 20. And so he sent Timothy, one of the men who was part of his missionary, if you will, band. And he sent Timothy to Ephesus to clean up the mess, to pastor and build on his foundation that he'd already laid and sort of get it back set in order. So Timothy's mission as a gospel minister, while it looks different in that it's not laying a new foundation, the principles of what Paul is telling Timothy he must do are the same principles as what are required in laying a new foundation. I want to be clear about this. In principle, what I do as a pastor here among this church is in principle the same thing we're sending our missionaries to do when they lay new foundations among unreached people groups. There are circumstances surrounding all that that can be quite dramatically different. But in principle, it is bringing the word of God to bear on people. People who are lost. Raising them up, training them making sure they have the Bible and their language, etc. So I want to consider what Paul tells Timothy in principle. And as we do, I want to consider really, Paul gives four commands to Timothy here in 2 Timothy 1-7. through He gives him four commands. And I want to really look at those four commands and consider four ways in which our missionaries must be prepared. So taking those four commands Paul gives Timothy and saying, here are four ways in which our missionaries must be prepared. I'm going to go over these each separately, but I'll tell you what they are. The missionary must be prepared to persevere in gospel grace. That's the first one. The second one is, the missionary must be prepared to pass on sound doctrine. Thirdly, the missionary must be prepared to participate in suffering. And fourthly, the missionary must be prepared to ponder his gospel duty. Paul exhorts Timothy with four commands to encourage him toward faithful endurance and gospel ministry. And I want to look at these four commands as four areas in which our missionaries must be prepared. So let's look at the first area in which the missionary must be prepared. The missionary and the gospel minister. If you're a young man in here thinking about being a pastor in a church, this applies to you. Circumstances may be different than our missionary, but in principle, it's the same. The missionary must be prepared to persevere in gospel grace. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now notice how Paul starts this as he transitions in chapter 2. You then... My child. Paul is making a deeply personal transition here. An emphatic transition here. He has just discussed in chapter 1 men who did not endure. They were not faithful in enduring as pastors or as elders. And now he says to them, after saying these men did not endure faithfully as elders, you then my child. You then my child. Paul's a father to Timothy in the faith. And in gospel ministry, he sees him as a son. He wants to exhort him like a father would exhort his son. It's the sort of thing, if you imagine, the father taking his son aside as he 
sends him off to college or if he sends him off to the military or he takes him aside as he sends him off to marriage as he is about to marry some woman. The father taking him aside as he, his, his son is about to have his own children and saying, you then, my son. I've seen other men do this improperly, not be faithful, not endure. This is what faithful endurance looks like. You then, my son. What's his command? You then, my son. Now look at the command. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now notice the command. Be strengthened is a present tense, passive imperative. In other words, present meaning it's a continual strengthening. Be continually strengthened. That is to be, if you will, the pattern or state of your life. You're just being strengthened. Now, passive, notice that. Not strengthen yourself. Not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Not you go out and be strong. It's passive. Be strengthened. Be strengthened. You then, my son, continually be strengthened. Do you hear the difference between that? Be strong. Be strengthened. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Be strengthened. Rely upon another. Be strengthened. It's a command to Timothy to be continually dependent upon the Lord for strength. It's an imperative. It's a command. Here's the command. It's a little bit like saying this. Be dependent. Hear that? Because it's passive as a command. Be dependent. Now, I know we love to be independent. And, and, and maybe in some regards, as you become an adult, in many regards, you need to be independent. That's good. But what Paul's saying here is, when it comes to living the Christian life, particularly when it comes to gospel ministry, you are wholly dependent. Know that. Be strengthened. This is perseverance in gospel ministry by reliance upon the Father for the grace that he has given us in Christ. Not only the grace for salvation, but the grace for salvation, if you will, justification, the declaring of you righteous and forgiveness of sin, sanctification, the progressive growth in holiness in your actual life, and service in gospel ministry. To be strengthened in all of that. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8. Look there. Therefore, here's Paul speaking to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. Now notice this. By the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us. Not that we self-generated. He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. If you don't understand that it's a gift then, that you didn't self-generate or earn in some way, then you haven't read the last phrase. When did he give you that gift in Christ Jesus? Before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. See, the Father decreed to give you that gift before the foundation of the world. In grace, in love, he decreed to give it to you. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You haven't done anything. It's a gift he decreed to give you before the foundation of the world. And now look what he says. And which now, in history which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. He decreed to give you that gift in Christ, and now historically in history, Christ has come. The gift of God, decreed before the ages began, has been manifested. It's been revealed. He walked among us. He was born of a virgin. He taught. He did miracles. He lived. He died. He rose from the dead. Who abolished death, Verse 10, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Notice, Paul doesn't even ultimately think he's the one guarding this gospel. He's relying upon God to guard that gospel. Follow the pattern of sound words, verse 13, that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Notice this. It is the grace given to us in Christ for salvation and for service that Paul is talking about here. This grace of God is given to us in Jesus Christ not only justifies us before God and sanctifies us for good works generally, but it specifically sanctifies us for the good work of gospel ministry. The Father lovingly decreed to send His Son to save you. The Son came and purchased superabounding grace for you in his life and death and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son to apply that grace to you through faith. And now the triune Lord indwells you by the Spirit. And the same triune Lord set you apart as heralds of this good news that is to be preached to the nations. Now that ought to stupefy us. Who am I? Sometimes we see Moses being told what he's to do to go before Pharaoh, or Gideon being told what he's to do. And we see them asking, Who am I? And we think, Faithless creature. Maybe we ought to stop and consider that there is some significant. Humility in the question, who am I that I should be a representative of the triune God? Who am I? Who am I that God would speak his glorious redemptive word through my mouth? I'm a creature. How does the creator deign to entrust me with his gospel? More than that, I'm a sinful creature. How can God's holy word be spoken from my unclean lips? Is that not what Isaiah asks? Further, I'm I'm spiritually impotent in myself. No plan, no program, no gimmick, no well-crafted message carries any inherent power to change the heart. I might be able to move a crowd emotionally, but I cannot change the heart. So what power do I have in myself to be effective in gospel ministry? How can I stand in the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil on behalf of Christ's people? When we send a missionary out, when we raise up and ordain a young pastor, we're looking at those young people and we're saying, you're going to be ambassador for, an ambassador for Christ. His word will be spoken through your mouth and you will stand in the gap of the battle against the world and the flesh and the devil on behalf of Christ's church. Who are they to do that? This is why the Spirit is commanding us. The Spirit is commanding us to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is trusting the power of God. Look at the Trinitarian nature of this. Look at chapter 1 again in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel By the power of God. How do I share in suffering for the gospel? I do it only by the power of God. Not from my strength, but his. Now go down to verse 14. The sanctifying and empowering work of the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. How do I do it? By the power of God. How do I do it? By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Now look at chapter 2 and verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ 
Jesus. See, I trust in the power of God. I rely upon the sanctifying and empowering work of the Holy Spirit. I lean on the grace I find in Christ. This is the work of the Holy Triune Lord. Not mine. I'm a vessel. He's chosen to set apart for honorable use. Because of any good in me? No. I'm a clay pot just like everyone else. In the midst of suffering for the gospel, really this is trusting what Richard Sibbs said that, that about leaders, particularly in the church. God bruises the reed so that he knows he's not an oak. See, this is knowing that our sufficiency comes from God who makes us ministers of the new covenant. To be continually strengthened by the grace in Christ is to look to Christ through diligent attention to the means of grace he's given us. We must persevere in grace first as Christians in order to persevere in grace as gospel ministers or missionaries. Hear that? Pastors need to know that they are first sheep before they are shepherds. Missionaries must know that they are, were first enemies who were reconciled to God through Christ before they are those sent out as ambassadors of that message of reconciliation. We're called to meditate on the law and gospel, to commune with our triune Lord, to trust in him and be obedient. We have a sacred duty to rely upon Christ and to trust him to strengthen us by his spirit to persevere in gospel grace. So that's the first command. The missionary must be prepared, really, to persevere in gospel grace. Second, the missionary must be prepared to pass on sound doctrine to faithful men. To pass on sound doctrine to faithful men. Look at 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Look at what he starts off in that phrase. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many Witnesses. Now, Paul is here referring to his public ministry. We know it's public because you heard this from me in the presence of many witnesses. He's referring to the doctrine he has taught publicly. This is not some kind of Gnostic appeal or, or looking for special knowledge that somehow you get from God that isn't delivered publicly from Paul. That's what Paul is saying. I delivered it to you publicly. In fact, I wrote it down in letters that you have, in books. This is the teaching, really, that the apostles handed down to us, the apostolic doctrine. Look at 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The pattern of the sound words here is not a reference to just mere words. It's a reference to the doctrinal content being taught by those words. I think we need to understand this. The meaning of the scripture is the word of God. If you don't believe that, take some time to sit down with someone from one of the various cults who use the Bible. They will attempt to use the same words on the same pages that you're attempting to use with different meanings. The meaning of Scripture is the Word of God. Paul is saying, follow the pattern of the sound words. This is pious doctrine, sound doctrine. Timothy is to follow that doctrine, to teach that doctrine, to guard that doctrine, and he's to do so from a heart devoted to the Lord by the powerful assistance of the Holy Spirit. Further, Timothy has received this sound doctrine from Paul, and now Timothy is to take this doctrine and entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The idea here of entrust is, is the idea of um, entrusting something to someone for safekeeping, for further public 
declaration. Think of this. The Lord has entrusted. Stop and consider it. The Lord has entrusted these gospel doctrines to your gospel ministers and missionaries. He's entrusted it to them. That's why your elders are to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. He's entrusted these to them. He's entrusted these gospel doctrines to you as a church. That's why Paul will rebuke the church at Galatia for the false doctrine happening among them. The Lord has entrusted these gospel doctrines to us. Of this enormous privilege, John Calvin said this, this gospel radiates his glory. It is the kingly scepter by which he governs his people, and yet he hands it over to us. I, I hear this so magnificently from Paul in Romans ten thirteen and following, don't you? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on the one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful are the feet of And Isaiah 52, 7, by the way, of him who brings the good news. It's talking about the suffering servant coming on the mountain, the Messiah. But Paul changes it. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Now we stand in the stead of the Christ. Announcing his message that he's entrusted to our care. That's been entrusted to us. That's an unspeakable privilege. And this sound doctrine that has been entrusted to us, we are to entrust to faithful men who are able to teach others also. Faithful men is not, please hear this, is not an emphasis on believers in general. Now I'm not saying believers in general, the believing church in general, does not bear responsibility for doctrine. You do. However, you bear that responsibility in making sure that your elders and pastors, deacons, are faithful men. And holding their feet to the fire when they become unfaithful. This sound doctrine has been entrusted to faithful men. Trustworthy and dependable men. These are the men Paul will later call elders in Titus 1.9. These are faithful men. They're faithful with the word. They teach sound doctrine and refute those that contradict. The kind of man with whom you leave, in other words, what you consider most precious. Take the most precious thing you have, who do you entrust that to? For me, I think of as a father of a daughter, the kind of man I would entrust my daughter to. That's the kind of man you turn the gospel doctrine over to, if you will. It's one of the questions you ought to ask whenever you support a pastor or a missionary. Would I send my children or my siblings to their church? If not, I probably shouldn't be giving them my support. These are the men we look for. It does not say entrust these things. Please hear this. It does not say entrust these things to charismatic personalities. Nor does it say entrust these things to talented men. Nor does it say entrust these things to popular men. But trustworthy men faithful men, men who, as 1 Timothy 4.12 says, who are setting an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity, men who rightly handle the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15, men who follow the pattern of sound words, 2 Timothy 1.13, men who are devoted to the public of reading of scripture, of teaching and exhortation, 1 Timothy 4.13, men who are willing and able to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, Titus 1.9, men who decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, men who are not ashamed of the gospel because they know that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1, 16, 
This does not say men who are good communicators. I tire of hearing about what a good communicator some pastor is. Who cares? If we're going to put him in Hollywood, I'm glad he's a great communicator. The real question is, is he a faithful man? Is he a godly man? Is he the kind of man who understands that this is God's word and he handles it with the utmost care? Is he the kind of man that understands these are God's people and not his own and that he is privileged to in any way, shape, or form stand as an under-shepherd to the chief shepherd Christ as he cares for them? Is that the kind of man he is? Who cares if he's an entertaining speaker? Who cares if he's funny? Who cares if he has an attractive personality? It does not say men who can draw crowds with rhetorical power and worldly methods or who can gather people with their winsome personalities. You know, there are a lot of cult leaders who got all that going for them. These are men with minds humbled by the gospel of God. These are men also with spines. You know, it takes humility to have a spine to stand up for the truth. Because what true humility is, is understanding that God is God and his word is the truth and I don't matter. And therefore, I will speak his word and the truth of his word no matter what it costs me personally. So these men have spines. These are men emboldened by the power of God and the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These are men who want to pick up the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, and storm the gates of hell to rescue the lost. These are men whose knees are calloused from prayer, whose eyes are filled with tears for the weak and straying, men whose feet never tire of carrying the word of God from the pulpit or, from, or to the pulpit or from house to house. Men who are ready to suffer the loss of all things that Jesus might be proclaimed in all nations. Men who tirelessly remain on the alert to battle the wolves for the protection of the sheep. By the way, every one of those things is a paraphrase of a New Testament text. These are the men to whom we entrust sound doctrine. So first, our missionaries need to be prepared to persevere in the gospel. And second, they need to be prepared to pass on sound doctrine to faithful men. Third, missionaries must be prepared to participate in suffering for the gospel. Missionaries must be prepared to participate in suffering for the gospel. Look at 2 Timothy 2.3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul has suffered... And he's inviting Timothy to suffer with him. Doesn't that sound like an exciting invitation? The young man comes into my office and says, I want to be a pastor. You want to share in suffering with me? I didn't say that. I want to be a missionary. You want to share in suffering with the people going to the field? Not really. But that's a command Paul's giving to this young man. Paul's telling Timothy, young man, by the way, he's probably in his mid-30s. He's called a young man in First and Second Timothy, though he's somewhere in his mid-30s. Share in suffering with me. Look at 2 Timothy 1.8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That's the gospel he's preaching. Nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Look at verse 12. Which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Look at chapter 2 and verse 9. For which I am suffering, bound with chains of the criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Now, I could go on and on. There's lots more. But this general point. The suffering Paul is talking about here is persecution and opposition from the world and the flesh and the devil. This is the kind of suffering for the gospel that is part and parcel to gospel ministry. We will be opposed by all the forces of hell as they are allied against Christ and his ministers. And we're to embrace suffering with other faithful gospel ministers. We're to embrace this suffering as Paul did and as our Lord and Savior did. We're to embrace this suffering as a good soldier. 
When soldiers go to war, they suffer, don't they? And they embrace it. And they soldier on. We're in a spiritual battle. We can't miss that. Satan is waging war against us and against our congregations. The Rimsteads are here, among them Ollie Ollie, as they are there getting to know them, building relationships, learning language and culture, and preparing to preach the gospel. Satan is already actively at work waging war against everything they hope to do. And it will not shrink as a reality as they begin to get to preaching the gospel. It will only grow. Satan is and will wage war against our missionaries and those whom they are reaching. And one of his most effective tools is to cause the gospel minister or the gospel missionary to flee or to fall into sin. Whether through impiety, in other words, ungodliness and poor character, or through impatience with the difficulties of the Christian life and ministry so that they just leave, or through deceitful doctrines. You get out there on your own with little interaction with the larger church and your mind starts to get twisted around weird ideas. Take enough malaria medications and trust me, that can happen. (laughs) I've had some weird dreams on malaria medication. Anyway, now Paul provides three metaphors that help us understand what it looks like to participate in suffering with him as a gospel minister. He provides three metaphors, and they come at us in verses 4, 5, and 6. Let's look at the three metaphors um, each one at a time. First, he has the undistracted soldier. The undistracted soldier, look at verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. In other words... The soldier for Christ, the the gospel minister or missionary, is to avoid getting entangled in civilian pursuits. It could be translated like this. Don't get distracted with this world's affairs or by daily life and concerns. Do you hear that? You think, don't get distracted by daily life and concerns? Yes. Don't get distracted by daily life and concerns. The point is not that you withdraw from this world and its concerns. It's not a call to monasticism. The point is that you stay on alert, you remain undistracted, you don't let daily affairs distract you from the bigger picture. You don't let worldly comforts and desires distract you. This is a kind of what Paul is calling for, a wholehearted devotion to gospel ministry. You're a soldier on active duty, the battle is waging. You don't sort of get to go home and sit on the couch and relax. You're always at war. You're to be undistracted in devotion to this battle. Though suffering might make it easy to want to look for greener pastures. You stay in the battle. You suffer as a good soldier. Your aim is to please the Lord who enlisted you. You're a soldier of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The chief shepherd has appointed you to be an under-shepherd. You're to remain devoted to the one who enlisted you. You're to seek to please him. There with him in heaven is your reward. So you keep your eyes relentlessly focused on him, and you do not neglect your charge as his minister or missionary. You fight the good fight of the faith, and so receive the crown of righteousness laid up in heaven for you. See, we want our missionaries to be prepared to avoid the distractions of this world. Second, he gives a second analogy or metaphor here. He gives his look at verse 5, the rule-keeping athlete. And he's going to mix his metaphors. First, he has a soldier, then the athlete, then the hardworking farmer. All under, be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So Paul is not afraid of mixing metaphors. Here he goes. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to The rules. This is the rule-keeping athlete. We're to compete according to the rules. What are the rules? Again, look at chapter 1 and verse 13 and 14. Here are the rules. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. In other words, teach 
sound doctrine that was passed on to you by the apostles and the prophets. What we have in Holy Scripture. Teach that. Follow that. Now notice what he says next. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. In other words, the rules are simple. Live a pious, godly life. And teach sound doctrine. That's it. We're to walk in holiness and teach sound doctrine. And part of teaching sound doctrine includes refuting those who contradict. Because you're guarding the good deposit. Those who do so receive the prize. In one sense, the job of a pastor or a missionary that we send out is, is really quite simple. Live a godly life. Teach sound doctrine. Doesn't mean it's easy. <clears throat> Just not particularly complicated. Those who do so receive the prize. Paul never ran aimlessly. But as one pursuing the prize, as one who disciplined himself so that after preaching to others, he would not find himself disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. This is why Paul can say at the end of his life that he has finished the race, kept the faith, fought the good fight of the faith. Third metaphor the hardworking farmer. So you have the undistracted soldier, the rule-keeping athlete, and now the hardworking farmer. Look at verse 6. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. See, ministers and missionaries are to work hard. It is all too easy in the quiet of your pastoral study to become lazy. Did you know that? That's a temptation. It's a temptation few men Get to know like a pastor in his study gets to know. No one's there to watch you. It's all too easy to become lazy. To spend your time doing something other than studying the word and prayer. It is all too easy for the missionary in a foreign context, away from scrutiny and accountability, to become lazy and distracted. Particularly when the grind of language and culture begins to wear them down. All too easy. Withdrawal and laziness are particularly true when you've been beaten up by the difficulties in ministry when Satan is attacking. You know when you feel really tempted to be lazy? After you've just gotten your tail kicked by some member whom you're pouring out your heart for before the Lord all the time. They kick your tail in some way because they're unhappy with something you did or they, they think you looked at them crosswise in some way or whatever. And you get that beat down, and you go to your study and just go, why am I doing this? I just want to watch TV now, (laughs) right? I don't want to think. I don't want to study. It's particularly easy to become distracted. I'm not saying woe is me and licking my wounds. Please don't misunderstand me. I have no complaints about pastoral ministry. I don't feel sorry for me. I love every minute of it. But, well, I don't love those minutes. But you get my point. Well, when we send our missionaries out to the field... And they have the challenge of language and culture. And then they're getting malaria or some other funky disease they wouldn't get here. Or something goes wrong with their partners in the field. Or something goes wrong with their sending agency. Or conflict happens between various people. They have the temptation to just want to hole up and be distracted by something else. Like any of us would. We're to labor, though. To work hard. To do our best in laboring in the Word. Look down at verse 15 of chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2, 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the Word of truth. We're to toil and strive in gospel ministry to work with all his strength, which he so powerfully works in us to proclaim Christ. We're to preach the gospel in public and from house to house. We are to labor in making Christ known from the pulpit and during regular pastoral visitation with our members. We're to pray and warn and teach and admonish and exhort with all humility, with tearful urgency, and with complete patience in teaching. This is the hard work missionaries are call, being called to in a foreign context, which has now been compiled with the difficulties of language and culture and different laws they have to contend with, etc. So we need to persevere in gospel grace, 
pass on the sound doctrine to faithful men, participate in suffering for the gospel, and finally, we need to ponder our gospel duty. Look at 2 Timothy 2.7. Ponder our gospel duty. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is an interesting command. Because Paul's just given three commands here, right in a row to Timothy, and then he just stops and says, here's my fourth command. Think about what I just said. Spend time thinking about this. Meditate on it. Ponder it. Don't just hear this, say amen, and then move on to the tyranny of the urgent. Don't let this be acknowledged by you, and then quickly turn to look at your social media feed or some other distraction. Paul's concern for Timothy is that he puts his mind on what he's saying. He wants him to ponder it, to contemplate what he's saying. You know, at Radius, we're really asking our students to ponder the realities of the gospel and of the suffering they will face. Ponder it. We basically give them 10 months to think about how hard this is going to be. Get ready. We want them to ponder the possibility that they may lose their spouse or child or their own life for the sake of the gospel. They will certainly lose comforts, worldly riches, and personal acclaim. They will suffer in any number of ways. Yet that remain faithful to their charge to preach the gospel, to hold fast the faithful word, to walk in holiness while doing so. We want them to ponder this, to set their minds on it, to be resolute in it. May we do the same. May we put our minds on what the Lord is saying. May we ponder what we've learned and strive by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit to faithfully endure in gospel ministry. Let me give you some implications of this really quickly. Um, And they're going to come kind of fast, but there's just six quick implications. First implication, the missionary must know the gospel and not his effort is God's power for salvation. He must know that. Yes, we are the means God uses, but God is the one who saves. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the missionary is not out looking for the latest and greatest methodology that promises to produce the quickest results. In fact, the missionary is fundamentally committed to the truth that there is no new means that works better than the old means given in Scripture. The missionary does not just believe he needs to plant churches that preach and teach and pray and baptize and disciple, etc., but also that he needs to be committed to the truth that other gimmicks are ineffective and inasmuch as any methodology causes us to trust in man and his methods, they empty the cross of its power. That's what Paul says, by the way. He, if he goes to worldly methods, he empties the cross of its power, 1 Corinthians 1.17. Second... Implication, the missionary must know sound doctrine. You hear that? They must know sound doctrine and be able to refute those who contradict. They must. The missionary must know the language and culture of a people fluently so that they are able to understand their worldview well enough to identify where syncretism may creep in. Syncretism is where you mix two different religions together. So if I jump into some people group and I don't know sound doctrine well, and I don't know their language and culture and worldview well, and I just start opening my mouth about Jesus, I'm going to create some third religion, worse than the other two. The missionary needs to know that, when they, that what the people group they're with hears when they say something like, Jesus is the answer. To what? Listen, folks, Jesus is only the answer if you're asking the right question. How do I deal with these territorial spirits that are in my garden that i got to keep happy? Jesus! What does that mean? Does that mean he's another God I can call on to help me with that? That's what often happens in animistic people groups. The people group to whom you're going, if you're a missionary, is likely to not be asking the right questions. Do you hear that? 
They don't even know anymore. Their so, consciences are so seared. They've pressed down the truth and unrighteousness as a people and culture for so long, they don't even know the right questions to ask anymore. The questions they ought to be asking. And so we don't just teach them the answers to the questions. We have to go back and unwind the very questions they think they ought to be answering and teach them what they really are. Here's the questions we ought to be asking and walk them through. Listen to what William Carey and some others said, some of his missionary team in India, what they said in the Serampore Forum Agreement. They said this, it is very important that we should gain all the information we can of the snares and delusions in which these heathens are held. By this means, we shall be able to converse with them in an intelligible manner, to know their modes of thinking, their habits, their propensities, their antipathies, the way in which they reason about God, sin, holiness, the way of salvation in a future state, to be aware of the bewitching nature in their idolatrous worship, their feasts, their songs, etc., is of the highest consequence if we would gain their attention to our discourse and would avoid being barbarians to them. In other words, sounding like we're saying nonsense. This knowledge may be easily obtained by conversing with sensible natives, by reading some parts of their works, and by attentively observing their manners and customs. In other words, he needs to know their language, to interact with their manners and customs, etc. In his case, there were people who had some written language there. You can read their documents even. Third, the missionary must raise up and test faithful leaders to whom they pass the baton. Third implication, the missionary must raise up and test faithful leaders to whom they pass the baton. He must train them thoroughly, thus biblical and theological training are necessary for them. And Bible translation becomes necessary. It's indispensable to sustaining a healthy church. Until a church has qualified and trained elders with the word of God to guide them, the missionary's work is not done. Fourth, the missionary must be well supplied by the church. Did you hear that? The missionary must be well supplied by the church. We want them to be supported well in the field, right? Why? Because we do not want our missionaries worrying about paying bills or chasing down supporters all the time. We want them focused on the task at hand. I don't know if you know this, but when you lose, when a missionary is out in the field and they lose a significant giver, they're in another country. It's kind of hard to come back and pick the giving back up. They can't just come back every time that happens. I've had guys ask me, just as a common point of wisdom, if I'm going to stop supporting a missionary, how should I handle it? I always tell them, hey, like, give them at least six months' notice, minimum. Let them know. I'm going to keep supporting you at least the next six months before it trails off. Give them some chance to respond. Don't just all of a sudden it just dries up, and now how do I pay the bills this month? See, we want them focused on the task at hand. Now, this becomes particularly difficult when we're talking about closed access countries because these missionaries must often be tent makers to be in those countries. They have to start businesses just to have the legal right to stay. Paul's not telling Timothy that tent making is categorically wrong. He did it. He says, be undistracted by civilian affairs. He doesn't mean you can't hold down a job if you have to, Timothy. That's not his point. He's saying that, Timothy, you need to understand your priority as a missionary or a minister is gospel work. That's your priority. Thus, even as we look at something like business as mission, all the rage in the missions world today, we need to start by altering that preposition as. Business as mission? Nope. Ought to be business for mission. Because the purpose of the business is to be there so that we can accomplish the mission. The business itself is not the mission. So we must relentlessly hold our missionaries accountable to how their business is enabling mission and eschew any business opportunity that distracts from mission. I hope our missions team is hearing me. Our missionaries need to be held accountable. If that business is not enabling mission, and if it's in any way distracting from mission, then we need to banish it in some way, find something else. Further, we must hold our missionaries accountable to language and culture learning. We ought to ask them about their progress. Some of them are with sending agencies that will stay on top of their progress in language and culture learning. Some of them are not. We need to be aware of that, and we need to know what language program they're using. 
Radius, we train our students to use the BEC, Becoming Equipped to Communicate. But there are others, and we need to know what level of fluency they've reached. That's a lot of work for a missions team, but if we're going to send people to the field, we just don't send them willy-nilly to do the hardest thing on earth, to suffer at danger of their lives and be like, have a nice trip, here's some money, pray for you. Fifth, the missionary must be focused on the doctrine, piety, and practice of Scripture. In other words, the missionary must compete according to the rules. The missionary must never allow cultural contextualization to mean compromising the apostolic doctrine, nor his commitment to godly living. See, we do not learn culture to conform our doctrine and lives to the ideology and ethics of that culture, but to lead that culture to the truth of God's word and to personal repentance. Further, the missionary knows he does not get to invent new methods. He's not looking for gimmicks and programs, trying to somehow overcome the weakness of gospel preaching. He embraces the weakness of gospel preaching. Trust the ordinary means of grace. He knows the doctrine passed down by the apostles. He knows the life of godliness to which he's been called. He is keen to never participate in missions methods that depart from his theological convictions. And finally, six, the missionary must be committed to hard work. We live in a comfortable culture. You guys know that, right? It's an incredibly comfortable culture. And laziness comes easy with comfort. We even have chairs called easy chairs and lazy boys, right? We know it's true. And technology particularly the media we can find there in technology, is a constant distraction from putting our nose to the grindstone and working diligently. This will be a challenge for those we send out as missionaries. Their distance from accountability will make laziness and a temptation. Their access to technology will make distraction from the task a temptation. Learning language and culture is hard work that requires intense focus and vigilance. You know what radius we ask our students in the training program to account for every 15 minutes of their day? Just because we want them to understand the habit of vigilant and focused work. They won't get it done if they don't. If they do not learn that habit, they will never learn language and culture as they need to and ought to. They may as well come home if they're going to be lazy and on Facebook all the time. Further, if the missionary hopes to reach a lost people, he must pray and preach and pray and preach. William Carey, again, speaks to this in the Sarampore Forum Agreement. Listen to this. It becomes us to watch all opportunities of doing good. A missionary would be highly culpable if he contented himself with preaching two or three times a week to those persons whom he might be able to get together and into a place of worship. To carry on conversation with the natives almost every hour in the day to go from village to village, from market to market, from one assembly to another, to talk to servants, laborers, etc., as often as opportunity offers, and to be instant in season and out of season, this is the life to which we are called in this country. We are apt to relax in these active assertions, especially in a warm climate. That's hot humid. You want to lay down under a tree, Right? But we shall do well always to fix it in our minds that life is short and that all around are perishing. As we conclude our series on missions, let me end with this final quote from the conclusion of the Seraporn Forum of Agreement from William Carey, the father of modern missions. Let us give ourselves up unreservedly to this glorious cause. Let us never think that our time our gifts, our strength, our families, or even the clothes we wear are our own. Let us sanctify them all to God and his cause. Oh, that he may sanctify us for his work. Let me pray. Father, we ask we ask for our church that you would raise up workers for the harvest field from among us. We ask for our church that we would faithfully support those whom you have already raised up and sent from us. We ask for our missionaries, those whom you are both raising up and who have already gone, that you would strengthen them 
to faithfully endure in the gospel ministry they've been sent to do. We pray that we would struggle with them in prayer, remembering them continually, knowing their need for you, our triune Lord, to strengthen them every hour of every day to be vigilant and focused and faithful. Father, we pray for young men and women who are thinking of the mission field even now, that they would ponder these things, that they would think long and hard about them. You would be honored in that. We pray for our church, that we would see many, many people, groups, come to know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to have the Word of God in their language. We're incredibly blessed by the privilege to participate at all to be entrusted with these gospel doctrines. We pray that we would not, we would not underestimate what a privilege that is and that we would never cease to be vigilant in guarding the good deposit by the power of God, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as we persevere in the gospel grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthened by him. In Jesus' name, amen.